This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Daniel Henderson. And what's up, girl? What's up? What is up? What is up? Just cruising. I had a, a moment of intense reflection this week. Mm. And it was a real a real city mouse, country mouse moment. City Sadie, country Sadie from big business moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for speaking in my language. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I got to cover the spread. You never I got to cover the spread. <laughs> so over our hiatus, I went to London for a week. Mm. And it was a little scary to think about international travel for the first time in a long time. But, you know, handled it well and just did my best to wear my masks and keep myself protected on these streets. Yes. And I really didn't have a plan. I just went to London because I wanted to be not in America for a week. You like lived there at some point? Am I wrong about that? Or you just... Yeah, I, I lived in Reading, okay. which is not too far away, but I lived in Reading for a little while. And I've just, I've been to London a lot. Like it's one of yeah. my, it's probably my second favorite city compared to New York. New York's always going to be number one in my heart, mm-hmm. but London is absolutely second. I also did post something on Instagram, just in conversation about the worst places I've also ever lived. And that (laughs) list is number one, Seattle, number two, Los Angeles, and number three, the apartment I had in Fairfield, California that had interior slugs. So Seattle and LA are worse than interior slugs. I had no idea that there were outside slugs and inside slugs. They're mostly outside slugs that find their way inside. Oh, okay. (laughs) So there's nothing patently different about them. They're just sort of like, we're coming in and we're going to live here. They're the same kind of disgusting. And they're like, we have found a breach and we are taking advantage of it. And we're going to eat your cat's food and leave our slime trail. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That is horrifying. And leave our slime trail all over the living room floor of your disgusting little studio apartment where when you sit on the toilet, your knees touch the sink. I don't know why it's so disturbing to me when insects or bugs eat pet food. I don't know why that freaks me out so much. Oh, because it's vile? (laughs) Because it is terrifyingly vile. (laughs) It should freak you out. Oh my god. I'm sorry to interrupt, but... No, please. I mean, interior slugs is is a lot to ingest. (laughs) Especially on the fly. Like, you didn't know you were going to be getting that information. On the fly. I saw what you did there. Thank you. Thank you. The name of our podcast. That's not the name of our podcast. It's the spirit of our pod. <laughs> and so, so yeah, like I've lived in horrible places. I've lived in great places. I love London. It is one of my favorite cities. I love British TV. I love most British things. Mm-hmm. I like British people. And it was just really nice. And I think the cool thing about being there is that I feel like the world has changed now in a way where people, people were very charming and charmed. So I think everyone was really excited to talk 
and to kind of meet new people. And like they would hear my accent and, you know, all of a sudden we'd be in a conversation. I got in a conversation. My friend Amy was with me. She lives in St. Louis. So she came over for the same week and we were kind of walking around and I saw this adorable little kid dancing around on the sidewalk. And I was like, I love your shoes. Your dress is so cool. And then we just ended up talking to her parents and this little kid for like 30 minutes, like exchanged email addresses by the end of it. Her dad was a surgeon, like this really cool black guy from Kansas, I think, something like that. Oh, wow. And her mom was like a cookbook author. Like they were just the coolest people. Yeah. And by the end of this conversation that we just randomly struck up on the sidewalk, we were like buddies. And we have, like, contact with each other. That's so charming. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I think it's just part of it is, like, the state of the world. And part of it is just that London's great. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. I know. I've never been, which is shameful. But I do watch a lot of Gardener's World. And yeah, you I do. love, like, everybody that builds, like, those really cute gardens in London. Like, yes. it, looks, it almost looks like a townhouse or something. But a lot of people have those little backyard garden things. And it's so yes. sweet. And I'm like, I want to go there. I want to. Oh, we're going. Yes. Don't worry. We are going. Now that I've done this, I've done the initial trip. And I feel like it's possible to go and protect yourself and be in the world a little bit. We're going to go. We'll go for sure. That is a sealed document contract right now. Oh, yeah. It is a verbal contract that we're making on air that I want everyone to hold us to. Because <laughs> Millie needs to go to London for sure. Yes. Adopt me. I'll go. Oh, the music alone. We're, we're going to go. So I went and had this great week in London. And then I came home, you know, where I live in the woods and in the country. <laughs> and I was just really ruminating on not just the difference in tone, but there's something that I've started noticing around here that I don't think is specific to this town. I think is specific to country life, where I started to pick up on these little moments of country revenge. Huh. Yeah, like my first inkling of this was I was doing my usual drive to get coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, and I passed this field that I pass all the time, and it's usually just empty, like it's full of farm stuff. The only thing that grows there is, is produce. This time, I drove by, and I saw somebody's garbage can from their home in the middle of the field, oh which can only be a revenge tactic. Like, somebody dragged this garbage can from somebody's house and was like, fuck you, and put it in the middle of a field. I hope it was the garbage people. I hope that they were like, I'm fucking over this shit. Like, whatever it is, they keep throwing away interior slugs and putting them in these cans, and fuck this. We're putting this can in a field. They just, like, Richard scaried their <laughs> truck over the wheat. <laughs> Wow. What a sight, though. What a sight to, like, just be driving or whatever and just look at a field and see a giant garbage can in the middle of it. Yes! And it made me think, like, that would fuck up my life. If somebody stole my garbage can, I'd be fucked. What am I going to do? I know. <laughs> like, you have to buy those things from the garbage company. I'd be fucked. Oh, and they're not cheap. They're not cheap! And it made me laugh, like, instantly because the absurdity of it, but also just thinking about the revenge of it. And then I <laughs> get to Dunkin' Donuts and... I don't know who this car belongs to, but there is a champagne-colored, like, old-school Chevy Suburban-style SUV kind of old truck. And I know I just threw a lot of words at you, but it's champagne-colored, it's boxy, <laughs> and it's old. Sure. And it's parked there regularly, so I think it belongs to one of the employees. I have noticed that above the rim of the front tire on the driver's side, the panel is riddled with bullet holes. Oh, shit. Just like 10 bullet holes. 
over the wheel well of this fucking tire. So what is the story there that you think? What what do you think happened? I think, again, country revenge. Yes. <laughs> like, did you drive your truck to somebody's house unexpectedly and they just popped off? Did you get this car at a police auction? <laughs> like, what is the story with this truck? Listen, I don't know if it's because I just decided to start a uh, justified rewatch, but in my mind, I'm like, is this like Arlo Givens and some other country thug having a shootout because of the drug trade in the holler or whatever? <laughs> I kind of hope that that's the fact because I would love somebody just being like, I'm not fixing this. Like, I want you to look at the damage of this and know that I mean business every time we fight about this holler. <laughs> I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine like just seeing a car full of bullet holes and just being like, well, I'm just driving this around like I'm yes. this is my car. And they are objectively bullet holes like they cannot be anything else. Yeah. It's not like rocks that have made dents. They're like fully no. formed holes, right? They are fully formed perforated holes the size of bullets. <laughs> So I have so many questions, but I've never seen anyone get into or out of this vehicle. Yeah. And I don't feel like stomping in there and being like, whose car's in the parking lot all shot up? I demand the story now. <laughs> is this country revenge or not? Tell me. And it's also, the parking lot is also adjacent to a couple of restaurants. So it might not even be anybody at the Dunkin' Donuts. Could be somebody who works at one of the restaurants. I've worked at enough restaurants to know. I'm not asking a fucking chef with a bullet riddled car oh. what's going on. Tell me about it. Sometimes a rogue car is just a rogue car and you can't go any further because if you go down the road, you may find more of a story than you ever wanted, right? Oh, complete. Like you're going to follow that truck <laughs> and you're going to pull up to the house and the first car you're going to see is one of those like garbage cars where it just has stuff in the back windows like Cabbage Patch Kids and shit. <laughs> and then you're going to keep going. <laughs> and it's going to be like, like there's always a Cabbage Patch Kid smashed against the window. <laughs> Multiple Cabbage Patch Kids is really scary. You've been driving this fucking car since goddamn 1986. <laughs> it makes sense to me a little bit because, like, there are a lot of people literally living out of their cars in L.A. Absolutely. But there are also a lot of people who are just like, I cannot walk the mile back to my apartment to get these papers that I need for work. So they just live in my car now. Yeah, I would honestly be that person. However, I have this whole instinct because of living in Atlanta for so long that you just don't leave anything in your car. Exactly. I leave virtually nothing in my car at this point. Yeah, my car is empty. Yeah. Empty, empty, empty. Like even if you pull up the little piece in the middle, you might find some hand sanitizer. Yeah. So if you're busting into my car, you're going to get the cord that I use to attach my phone to. No phone, nothing else is in there, Yeah, and some hand sanitizer, and a CD, because my car does have a CD player, Yeah, a CD of De La Soul is dead because they're not streaming. Yes. So if I want to listen to De La Soul in my car, I have to put on the CD. God, I used to keep CDs in my car. Oh my God, like now you're just taking me back. You remember those wallets? <laughs> like the flip down, <laughs> the flip down wallet from the visor. And it only was supposed to hold 10 discs, and there's like 45 discs in there. Just smash real tight. That's the top 10. And you're like, I'm going to scratch all of my favorite t fucking CDs because they're all going in there. Oh, my God. I remember when I was in high school, I used to, like, my dad would be like, go clean out your car. It's disgusting in here. And I was just, all I was doing was vacuuming up shards of jewel cases, like the little ends <laughs> where they attach 
You know, I know those nubs like those little broken fucking ends. I'm just like this entire car is filled with busted jewel cases from CDs. I know those nubs well. (laughs) No. And you're like, this is a job for a shop vac. This is not a job for a home vacuum. This is a job for an industrial shop vac because you're just sucking up your friends leaving like cups in there and like smashed French fries. Oh, yeah. If the kids of today knew the indignity of vacuuming jewel case nubs then we would get along. I feel like the simple fact that she didn't experience it means we're always going to have differences. That's the generational divide. (laughs) That's it in a nutshell. You've never vacuumed up a nub that you've also in the summertime stepped on in your bare feet. Yes. Or alternately, never experienced the sensation of leaving a record store in your car and trying to unwrap a brand new CD while you're driving. Oh, please. Impossible! Like, I feel like you would see that exact situation on Wipeout or something, like some game show now, because it's impossible. Yes. And we all tried it. Yeah. And we're like, you're biting it, and you're trying to get in there with your nails, (laughs) and you're fucking doing 50 down the highway, and you're like, I want to hear this song while I'm driving! Get your teeth in the folds, in the folds of the plastic on the corner. Try to run a nail down that crease where the case opened. Yes, get that crease going, get a nail in the crease, and then... I did not know this. We're really going down a path here. I'm just, I'm just saying. I apologize in advance, but like, it wasn't until I actually worked in a record store that it, did I figure out that you can actually remove one of the ends of the CD cover mm-hmm. to take that sticky plastic tape off it, off the top that used to seal it. You know what I mean? Because yep. I used to just sit there and try to pick it off. Yeah, it took me like 45 minutes just to get that plastic sticky tape that was to come on CDs. And I'm like, no, all you gotta do is flip this up and just remove the tape. It's easy. I cannot tell you how many times I got so frustrated that I would just try to open the case and see if the pressure from the case and the sharp edge of the case would do the rest of the opening for me. Like I'm trying to open like a cellophane case because I was so frustrated. I'm like, I cannot sit in this car in this parking lot for another 20 minutes trying to get into this shit. My key can't penetrate it. (laughs) They had like military grade plastic on these fucking CDs. Like we could not get in there. I know. And the kids these days, they just don't know. Got it so easy. But I will also say before we start getting DMs, I am definitely drawing a correlation between what I consider a garbage car and a hoarder. Hoarding is a psychological issue. Sure. And I know that. I'm talking about a lazy person's garbage car. There's a valley between those two things for me. Totally agree. I have been in a garbage car many times. (laughs) Don't write anybody out. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I'm not going to write anybody out. I mean, I do know exactly whose cars they are, but I won't name names. But the garbage cars are, in a way, it's sort of like, well, all bets are off then. So you'd go, they'd come pick you up or whatever, and you'd be like, oh, well, this car is fucking trash, so I guess it doesn't really matter if I, like, blow my nose and then I just leave this tissue in the door thing, because it's not going to matter. But it was a lot of times, like, especially in high school when I was getting in garbage cars, like, there were smokers. Yeah. That was a huge contribution to, like, the garbage part, like... Oh, yeah. Smushed out cigarette butts, holes in the headliner, like the the top. Yep. Just shit everywhere, so. Empty packets of cigarettes and like the smashed cellophane from those sticking to your feet when you get out to your shoes. (laughs) We were were a generation of filth, I just want to (laughs) say. Like there was the greatest generation, boomers, and then dirtbags. We were the dirtbag generation and... 
It carries on to this day in many of our behaviors, and it's fine. It's fine. You can forget Gen X because we're fucking disgusting. Garbage car dirtbags unite, is all I'm saying. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So we are in our last week of Black History Month. Yeah, it's been a good one. It has. Last week was quite a doozy. I meant to ask you, did you watch The Tragedy of Macbeth yet? Have you seen it yet? You know I have. Oh, girl, I wish. I tried. I tried. You know how I am with Shakespeare. I have a mental block. I know. It's like they did you dirty by putting two of your favorite, like two great actors in a Shakespearean movie. Listen, the entire lineage of that movie was for me. I'm like the Coen brothers, Francis McDormand, Denzel. Yes. This is great. But why? Why are we doing the Shakespeare language? Because it's like I can't figure it out. I had the subtitles on and I was like... I don't know what this shit means. I'm trying. (laughs) Like, Denzel was so hot. I'm sorry. I hate to objectify our king. But I'm just saying, he was so hot with his, like, salt and pepper. I was like, oh, my God. So hot. I wish I could understand what the fuck is going on right now. I want to so bad. (laughs) I absolutely love that journey for you. Um, (laughs) It is unsurprising and lovely and hilarious. <laughs> and I did think of you when I was watching it because I'm like, this movie is so good. I wonder if Millie's going to dip in a toe. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> it's so good. And I'm like, there's no time of day that you could watch it that I think it would make more sense to you. Like, yeah. watching it in the morning doesn't help. Watching it right before you go to bed doesn't help. I truly think it's going to be one of those films that you have to put on in the background and just ingest it by osmosis. And then one day you'll be like, oh, no, I totally get it. Like, I understand. Yeah. Like, turn it into an audiobook, record it, and just put it on when you go to sleep at night. So then when you wake up one day, like three months later, you'll be like, no, I totally understand what they're saying. I get it. <laughs> or it's going to have to be the thing where I watch 10 minutes at a time over the course of several months. Which is always a great way to watch a film. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I got to do my 10 minutes today, and I watch the 10 minutes of the movie, and then I'm like, all right. So now I got to look up everything, oh, good. figure out what this is, do the translation. Is there a translation app, like a Shakespeare to modern English translation app? If there's not, and you don't invent it, I will be so mad. <laughs> if there was a, somebody on this planet built to create that app, it is you. <laughs> you know what I really wonder, too? This is one of those movies that, because the acting is so good... I wonder, is it something that you could watch on mute and just try to get, like, just try to, through their actions and facial expressions, try to understand what's happening? Yeah, that that might be a good idea. I'm sure that, like, Joel Cohen wants it to be watched that way with absolutely no sound. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Listen, I was, I literally had the Wikipedia entry for Macbeth. (laughs) I was like, all right, I feel like we're at this part now. 
I feel like this is what's happening. Like the witch thing, got it. It was great. Like, oh, yeah. it, but right after the witch thing, I was like, okay, now what are we doing? I'm trying to figure <laughs> this out. And I'm like scrolling the like <laughs> paragraph, being like, all right, I think I missed this part. Uh, oh, anyway, God. I need you to come to my house and and perform it for me. I was just gonna recommend, like, maybe I'll just come and hang out with you, and like we can pause it and talk about it and get through it that way. Yeah, because you've you've probably memorized the entire thing, like, <laughs> and can say it like right now if you wanted to. I haven't. I actually haven't picked my Shakespeare soliloquy for the year yet. See, you got to really have gone back deep into our archives to know this. But one of the first episodes that we recorded, Danielle revealed to us that she like has memorized Shakespeare and she can just say it whenever she wants to. It's my intellectual hobby to memorize one Shakespearean soliloquy every year because I'm terrified that I am going to get Alzheimer's or dementia like my grandmother and my great grandmother. And I'm just trying to keep that brain spry. You got it. Trying to use that muscle. And it's fun. It's fun to be able to do that and whip it out at a party or something. I mean, instead of doing like Sudoku, you're just memorizing Shakespeare, which I think is so great. I'm like, she went the high road. I love this. Thank you. I went the ultra nerdy road. And speaking of working out muscles, how are we doing with deadlifting Sonny Corleo and our challenge that we've given each other? <laughs> Let me tell you right now. So I don't know if anybody knows this. You might have seen this on my Soshmeads, but I joined a women's barbell club. Yeah, you did. It is really cool. I've been several times. I go basically two times a week. And it's very simple. We basically do four lifts. Nice. Right? One of them being the deadlift. And when I first got there, you know, you basically, they try to figure out how much you can do. Yeah. They have to assess the situation. <laughs> yeah. Assess the situation. And so... So basically, I was assuming that I couldn't do anything. Like I was like, oh, I'm going to be able to lift like 10 pounds. I actually did a lot more than I thought I could. And now after like, how long have I been there? Three weeks or something like that? Like, I don't know how much Sonny Corleone weighs, really. I don't want to ask James Caan how much he weighs. I feel like I can do at least half of a Sonny Corleone, <gasps> maybe three fourths of a Sonny Corleone. So I'm on the way, baby. What? Oh, yeah. I am so impressed by this. Three weeks? Three weeks. I am so impressed by this. I need to join a class, clearly, because I have done two things in my Deadlift Sunny Corleone challenge in the past couple of weeks. Carrot, my cat, weighs 15 pounds. So I pick him up and I've tried to curl him. And I usually like, you know, I pick him up and I curl him and I kiss his little face and then I bring him down. And he hates every fucking minute of it. And <laughs> the next day, my arms are sore by from curling my cat. That is how sore I am. He's 15 pounds. And then I also, I started rocking these two-pound weights on the treadmill, and I bought a trampoline for Christmas for myself. Wow. So I've been tramping and holding weights, and I'm, like, destroyed the next day. Two pounds. Oh, yeah. Two pounds. So if you're lifting half or three-quarters of a Sunny Corleone, I'm going to be able to, like, cradle his head. Yeah. And just, like, gently lift it. I can support his neck. Like, that's where I am right now. Look, you can get there. I'm telling you right now, especially if you've previously lifted something before, you have muscle memory. Yeah. That's the thing. I forgot all about that. And I was reminded by the teacher, like, basically, like, hey, 
you know, you think you're going to come up here and not be able to lift two pounds, but actually you did this before technically and yeah. your muscles remember how to do it. And I'm not going to lie, sore as fuck, like yeah. every muscle, which is so strange because I'm basically like, but I'm only like doing this like very simple movement. No, no, it's using all these muscles that you don't know that you have. But then it also is that kind of thing where you're like, but oh, I use these muscles in my everyday life to pick up my 15 pound cat, to pick up like this fucking water jug that I have to put mm-hmm. on the thing. And it's just sort of like, oh, so that's why people lift is because it helps with your tasks for life. Right. Like your day to day. But then it also can help for picking up aging Hollywood actors. It better. If we decide to contact him and say, will you let two women lift you? First and foremost, I have no muscle memory. I've never intentionally lifted a weight in my goddamn life. <laughs> my muscles would have to be pulling back to the 80s to get muscle memory for me picking up anything more than like a water jug, for sure. <laughs> but also, do you know how impressed I will be if we go and find a way to deadlift Jimmy Khan and you do it by yourself? I will throw you a parade if you just like pick him up and then like lift him above your head (laughs) if that's where you are at the end of this year i'm gonna give it to you i'm gonna i'll buy you a car i don't care Okay, you've created an additional challenge, okay? So deadlifting Sonny Corleone is one thing. Now you're telling me that he needs to do an overhead press of Sonny Corleone? I would like to see a single press solo of Sonny Corleone. And you know what? I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give you till 2024. Let's do a deadlift this year, and I'll give you a couple extra years to pump him up above (laughs) your head. Because I want to see some pumps. I don't want to see you just, like, lift him and throw him on a mat. I want to see you lift him and, like, really do a couple of presses. Like, four (laughs) presses. So he's truly confused by the time you let him down. Like, I want him to have a little bit of terror that he's never coming down. Look, we're going to wrap him up in a very soft blanket. Cashmere. (laughs) He's going to be, like, burritoed in this very cozy environment. Okay. And he'll love it. It'll be just sort of like a ride. You know what I mean? It'll be like taking a ride. We're putting you over our heads. We're not going to drop you, sir. There'll be spotters. How are we going to get, and I say we, but I'm not doing it. How are you going to get him down? (laughs) Once you, once you pump him over your head, if I can deadlift him, I'll be thrilled. I'm ending it there. How are you going to get Sonny Corleone, Jimmy Khan down from his burrito Once you pump him over your head. (laughs) Listen, I actually don't know. Because a lot of times when people lift, once they've done the hard part, they just drop the weight. They just drop it. That's all I ever see. In a very violent way, which I have a hard time with. Yeah. Because it feels very bro move. But I know that, hey, this is what happens. You've just put fucking 450 pounds over your head. You don't want to come all the way down. You're just dropping that shit. Yeah. I know that if we dropped him, he would break every bone in his body. And we don't want that. So we're going to have to figure out a way to get him down. Then he would heal and break every bone in our body. (laughs) I feel like the way to go about it, just hear me out, Crane. (laughs) You pump him up into the jaws of like one of those... (laughs) One of those diggers that, like, scoops out dirt out of the earth. Excavator, I think that's what we call it. Yeah, yeah, excavator. You pump him directly into the maw of an excavator, and he just, in his blanket, in his little burrito, just rolls safely to the edge of it, to the interior, and they just cradle him down to the earth and let him out, and (laughs) all is well. This sounds so perfect. This plan is, we're going to have to hire an excavator, 
a person to drive it. We'll do it in Vegas. Of course. Why not? We'll do, it'll be like a weigh-in for a boxing match. Like, it's going to be very pompous circumstance. Of course. Also, I feel like he should pay for the excavator. Like, if you want to get down to the earth safely, then you have to hire an excavator. Like, what Millie can do is pump you up. From that point, your choice is either she will throw you to the ground, or you can hire an excavator, and she will gently push you over the lip into the dump truck part of the excavator. Listen, I know that you're in a cashmere burrito. Uh, <laughs> But we will take the utmost care. But it's on your time. It's on your time. It's on your time. You didn't even want to do this to begin with, and now you got to buy an excavator. Absolutely. To get you down from this stunt. We're out here deadlifting, but we're also out here sticking it to the patriarchy. And I feel like Jimmy Khan's got to be on board with that. And we'll pay for the experience. <laughs> he could get thrown to the ground. Either way, we're going to give him an option. And I feel like our due diligence is done. Our part is the deadlift. <laughs> your part is the pump. And his part is getting down. Listen, I, I feel like his son, whoever, what was his son that was in Hawaii Five O? Oh, Scott. Scott Khan? Yes. Yeah. He, he will have something to say about this. He'd be like, do not lift my dad an inch. I'll be like, well, then why don't you climb up there and get him? <laughs> Scott Khan, you got muscles? Yeah, you got muscles. Come on. Little hottie. Why don't you do one of those baskets? Like, basket your fingers together, tent your fingers together, and just catch him. How about you get off our back, Scott Con? <laughs> just catch your dad after we lift him in the air. What the fuck? Is that asking too much? We'll throw him right at you. <laughs> we are popping off. Let's talk about movies. Good Lord. I know. Listen, we're just coming back from a break. So, like, I'm giving us this grace. Exactly. To truly formulate these fucking crazy plans. <laughs> But if we hadn't been able to spin that out, we would never have arrived at Scott Con catching his own dad. <laughs> Which is now a crucial part of this deadlift ceremony. I swear. Is this what being in a writer's room is like? Do you just sit around and just like tell tales? 100%. This is it. And you throw in some personal stories. Like, I saw a car that was riddled with bullets, and then you just spin it out to garbage cars and Scott Conn catching his dad, and then <laughs> you try to fit that into a scene and make a story out of it. Oh, my God. Usually usually there's an adult in the room that's like, can we just focus on what we're actually doing and not tell any more of these insane stories from the inside of your murky little head? Well, unfortunately, we don't stop each other at all because we're not those type of people. We're not those kinds of friends. We encourage the madness. Yeah. So we are in our last week of our Black History Month, like I said before, and this week we're going out with one of the biggest bangs of all time. In my opinion. We had to do it. We had to do it for them. We had to do it for us. Yeah. This is a cumulative experience. Yes. At the end of this Black History Month. Do you want to tell them what our theme is? Yeah. I mean, it's... I, I, I feel like they figured it out, but our theme this week is Black Horror. Yeah, yeah. And I want to start off, if you don't mind, asking you a question, because you have famously told us since the beginning of this podcast that you grew up watching horror movies, that your grandma is a horror movie maniac of the highest order. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of want to flesh that out a little bit because I feel like we're doing this theme 
we're talking about kind of almost two things, I feel like, in a way. You're talking about Black creators of horror, right? So, like, obviously, we're going to talk a lot about Jordan Peele and Rusty Kundif, who directed my movie. But, like, also Black fans of horror or, like, yes. viewers of horror, like Black viewers of horror. So, I don't know. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Just the experience of being a horror movie fan as a Black person, as a Black family. Yes. I think that's an excellent question. And I think that from my perspective, my grandmother's love of horror comes from what I would note at the time that she was like my age or younger, a real social constriction. So there wasn't a lot of space to really imagine a different kind of life. So science fiction, horror, like those kind of pop cultural elements, I feel like have always been really popular in Black culture. Yeah. Because those are means for us to escape by envisioning a completely different life. And I'll say from my point of view, especially now that, you know, over the last few decades, we've been seeing more horror from Black creators. To me, it's a way of shining a light on culture in a way that says, we have enough to be afraid of in real life. Now we're going to kind of flip that script and show you what we are afraid of and show you what our fears are in a creative way, but kind of flip the script a little bit and say, hey, we've seen what white people are afraid of in horror movies forever. And now we want you to understand that our fears are sometimes a little bit more academic and a little more psychological and a little more emotional than just the slasher flick. So I think that that's kind of my approach to it. Like it's, it's an escapism, but it's all so again, in the hands of Black creators, it becomes a spotlight. And I think that that's really necessary for this time of life that we're living in. Yeah. I wasn't sure if you were going to bring this up, but when we were preparing for this episode, I rewatched this really great documentary called Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Ooh. It came out in 2019. It was on Shudder, if anybody has Shudder, the horror streaming app. But it's basically an entire documentary about the history of black horror and obviously a lot of great moments. It goes far back. I mean, it even goes like to movies in the early 20th century. And then obviously up into now and interviews a lot of great people, including Jordan Peele. And I think he said something in the documentary and I'm paraphrasing. So take that as you will. But basically he said something to the effect of like, as a person who grew up watching horror, you were always watching white people in the horror, like react to the horror. And as a black person, and he felt like that would not be my reaction. Like I would not go into the basement. I would not do these things. Right. And part of like his reaction to those movies was always just like, why are these people doing these things that I would never do? And so I think that yes. was kind of part of why he decided to make Get Out because he was like, well, what would we do? What would I do as a black person? I would definitely never like follow that weird guy into the house or yes. whatever. You know, <laughs> not of my own free will. Hell no. But then he creatively came up with a solution to that. He came up with a solution to like, how do we get that guy in the basement if he wouldn't follow him willingly? Right. And I love that. It's also where that that kind of joke comes from about how, you know, when you watch a, a horror movie with a black person in a movie theater, we're always shouting at the screen and we're always like <laughs> bugging out. And it's because of that exact thing where we're like, this literally does not make common sense to me. I cannot suspend disbelief enough to think someone is this dumb yeah. just to keep this movie going. Oh, God, totally. I don't think I've ever asked you this before. What types of horror freak you out the most? Like, do you have like a little storyline or subgenre that really just fucking freaks you the fuck out? Oh, completely. Spooky kids can get the fuck out of here. <laughs> 
Yes. So like Annabelle and all that. I am never. Get your spooky kids the fuck out of here. I do not want to see a child holding a knife, attacking somebody. It creeps me the fuck out. I cannot handle it. I also do not. I don't like gore. Okay. I like psychological horror. And I like, you know, a little bit of violence. You you know I love violence. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't? But I don't like gore. And so I don't ever want to see, like, a leg coming off in a movie. Sure. I don't want to see, like, someone being rammed through and then their innards are spilling out on the ground. Like, that just makes me want to puke. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I don't like horror that is extreme gore or children. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. And I got to say, spooky dolls can also get the fuck out of here. I am done with a haunted doll. Well, I apologize because my movie had some spooky dolls. Your spooky dolls were hilarious, though. (laughs) Yeah. We will definitely get to that. But I'm excited to talk about these two movies because it's like, it feels almost like Get Out was sort of like a mile marker in a lot of ways for the new era. Like, Get Out was just this huge huge, massive sea change in terms of like what is happening right now and what it was before. But I like that you picked his second film because I feel like there's something really particular that I want to talk to you about when it comes to like people's second films, especially when the first film is so huge and this like huge, masterful success. So I can't wait to talk about your movie and I haven't seen it since it came out. So I'm so excited. I feel the same way about yours. I have not seen your movie since I was like 19. Wow. (laughs) So I am thrilled to talk about your movie because there are things about it that I didn't remember being as intense as they were. Yep. And so I am like so psyched. And I think that Jordan Peele is very interesting to me as a writer. I think he's so smart and so funny. But he also, I don't know, like you said, I think he flips the script. He's really a part of that sea change. And he's part of that sea change in a way where he's not willing to compromise what he thinks is scary. So he's changing our conception of even what we find scary. Yeah. Which I think is wild. And I'm going to bring her up a couple of times in the episode while I'm talking about my film, but Soraya Nadia McDonald wrote at The Undefeated about this film in an article called Jordan Peele's Us has a message for those who can hear above the screams. And one thing that she says, and I'll quote here, is, quote, in both Get Out and Us, Peel builds a tradition of Black horror as social commentary and pushback against white stereotypes of Blackness that extends as far back as Dwayne Jones's turn as Ben in Night of the Living Dead from 1968. Mm-hmm. Ben, who is actually the hero of the film, ends up getting shot and tossed on a funeral pyre when white rescuers assume he's an enemy. This after he spent the movie saving a bunch of white people from marauding ghouls looking to eat live flesh, end quote. So I think that it's worth mentioning before we get specifically into the movie Us. I agree with Soraya McDonald. Jordan Peele is definitely pushing back against white stereotypes of blackness and black stereotypes of blackness. I think that he's pushing back against how we see ourselves as a society. And it's very exciting. Oh, yeah. I know you're going first this week, so I couldn't be more pleased. And not just because I hate going first, but I'm just saying that, like, we're going to talk a lot about this movie. And I'm really excited. It's going to be a fun episode. For sure. And I would be remiss if I didn't say 
say right off the bat, before we even, again, get deep into the commentary of us, that you and I saw this movie together at The Grove when we both lived in L.A. And we had a conversation from the time we left the theater till we got into the parking garage until we dropped each other off at home. I think I dropped you off at home. And we had a conversation about this movie the whole time that was so intense and so questioning that we literally said to each other, we should start a film podcast. And I really feel like us is the origin of us having this podcast right now. That's right. Jordan Peele brought us together if you want to get down to brass tacks, which is kind of magical. The ultimate matchmaker. I love it. I love that this is the movie that basically kicked this entire thing off. So this is our our origin story. (laughs) This freaky as fuck movie. Which I got to tell you, when we watched it, I think like in the theater, I will say this when you get into the movie. This is the scariest movie ever. Yeah, this movie is truly scary. Like even scarier than when we saw it in 2019. Oh, I agree. Well, let's get into it. I'm just going to set this up. Yes. My movie for our final theme of Black History Month, Black Horror, was released in 2019. It was written, directed, and produced by Jordan Peele. And the movie is Us. There's a family in our driveway. It's probably the neighbors. But y'all scare of a family? Hi, can I help you? Zora, put your shoes on. If you want to get crazy, we can get crazy. So my one-sentence synopsis of this film, which was kind of difficult to create, is this. The 15 minutes that it takes for a little girl to get lost at the Santa Cruz boardwalk in 1986 comes back to haunt her family years later in a story rife with allegory, metaphor, symbolism, and some of the scariest shit I have ever seen on a movie screen. (laughs) That's a masterpiece. A masterpiece (laughs) of a one-sentence synopsis. This movie is truly terrifying. So just to give you the gist of it, if you haven't seen this movie, because, you know, it's it's rare that we do newer movies as well. Mm. But I feel like because this is a newer film that was released in the last couple of years, more people probably have seen it. However, if you haven't or if you've forgotten, the real summary of this film is that Adelaide is a little girl. She goes missing at this fair with her parents who are kind of bickering. Dad's not paying attention. In true 80s kid fashion, he's like, I'm going to play whack-a-mole piece and she wanders off into this hall of mirrors and she meets herself essentially like she sees a very spooky image in the hall of mirrors as she approaches the mirror the image in the mirror does not turn around like it's the back of this creature that looks like her mm-hmm. so she goes into this hall of mirrors and she comes out changed like she's silent and she's not speaking and her parents take her to a psychologist and she's just a different kind of child when she comes out of this and they don't know what happened to her so years later Adelaide who's played by Lupita Nyong'o comes back to the same boardwalk to go on vacation with her family and she now is married she's married to Gabe Wilson who's played by Winston Duke the truest of the nerdy dads like corny dad genre he plays it so well. Oh, so cute. Oh, he's so adorable with his little glasses. And there's one part where she's walking away 
and he's in the bedroom and he's like, I'll see you later in the magic room. Like he's just so corny and hilarious <laughs> and he plays it really well. Yeah. And they have these two kids, Zora, who is played by Shahadi Wright Joseph in a masterful turn. She's portraying a 16 year old and she just plays this so well. And Jason, who's played by Evan Alex, again, fantastic. One of the things that I will say about this movie that still continues to blow me away is how amazingly all of these actors play dual roles. Yeah. Oh, my God. Obviously, I could do an entire episode about Lupita in this movie. Like, I'm just like, she is such an incredible actor. Yes. Like, I'm like, how the hell is she able to inhabit, like, both these characters perfectly? And I feel like she could be the new Sarah Connor, as far as I'm concerned. Like, she needs to be, like, our fucking action movie hero. She's able to do, like, physical stuff really well. Absolutely. She's got that really expressive face. I mean, she's just, like, such a gem. She is truly an incredible actor. Like, I know she got an Academy Award for 12 Years a Slave. I think she should have gotten one for this role. I truly think she should have. Thank you! No, I thought that, too. I was like, holy shit, like, nobody's doing this. Like, what she's doing in this movie is like, nobody is doing this. And I was like, completely blown away. This is my second watch, obviously. I saw it with you the first time, but I was like, that really hit home this time. It's just about how she should have gotten all the awards for this movie. It was a unique character and a unique portrayal of the character. So yeah, she is, whoo, blows me away. But all of these actors are fantastic. And this is, again, a journey where she's coming back to this boardwalk with her family. And she seems nervous about the trip. She's a little uneasy. They're kind of sharing this trip with this white family who (laughs) the parents are um, Elizabeth Moss and Tim Heidecker, which is great. And they have these twin daughters, like these teenage twin daughters. So they're kind of sharing this trip. But Addie, you know, Adelaide, she's very nervous about it. And then one night, as she's telling Gabe... I've always felt like there was a mirror image, like there was a double of me out there in the world trying to get me. Jason, their son, walks into their bedroom and says, there's a family in our driveway and all hell breaks loose. Oh my God, truly. (laughs) Because the family in the driveway, they show up in red jumpsuits, leather driving gloves, and sharp gold scissors, and they are the exact doppelgangers of Addie's family. There was a true moment of terror. And I don't know if it's because now I'm living in a house that has a driveway, mm-hmm. but that moment, and this this was how I felt in 2019, but it was doubled. The fear was doubled now when I rewatched this movie. The idea of them just seeing the outline of this family at the top of the driveway and then nothing happening, and they're just sitting there being like, what the fuck is this? And the dad goes out and he's just like, excuse me, what are you doing? And there's no movement. None. And I'm just like, that creeping fear of like there's a stranger on our property but they're not moving or saying anything was fucking terrifying (laughs) they have all the power in that situation oh yeah that kind of lurk it's a powerful stance and they're standing there holding hands like those paper dolls yeah and then the two kids one is on either side of the parents they just take the fuck off the two kids just run and that scared the shit out of me yes (laughs) I'm like where the fuck are these kids going what is the plan what is happening here there's nothing worse in a horror movie when a completely still person just bolts into action for no reason fuck it terrifying fuck it 
Primal fear. Oh my God. So we're, what we're dealing with here too, which again, I love about the way that Jordan Peele tends to reimagine larger themes that we've already experienced. So this is like a play on the evil twin motif, a play on home invasion films, but it's so smart. So these doppelgangers show up and look, they have been to Big Bud Press. They have bought their red jumpsuits ah! <laughs> and they are silent. And the only person that speaks is Addie's doppelganger who goes by Red. And they call themselves Shadows. And Red, just the way that Lupita and Yango inhabits the bodily form of this character, where she walks very straight back, her eyes are wide, she has a very raspy, halting voice. Everything about how she portrays this character scares the shit out of me. There's one part where she comes into the house, and this is again early on in the All Hell Breaking Loose, and she's sitting down across from from the family and she looks at Zora the 16 year old and she goes little girl run those three words are the scariest oh. shit I saw all year. Oh, definitely. All year when that movie came out. I was like, what the fuck? And now you think I watched that in my house alone and didn't get up to fucking piss? Because I want to piss my pants. Yeah. I was like, oh, hell no. I had to pause it. I was like, nope. <laughs> hell no. I'm not being in this house by myself. <laughs> Lupita Nyong'o's telling this little girl to run. Oh my God, totally. Freaked me out. So this is like, again, this is where we start this journey and we start to learn about this shadow family. They're referred to in the movie they refer to themselves as shadows, but I've also read of them as being referred to as the tethers. The doppelgangers are tethered to the main characters. Mm -hmm. And... The thing that this made me think about this time, because I've watched it a couple times since it came out, but this time in particular, I was really paying attention to that relationship. And it made me question, what does it mean when a tether breaks free? What does it mean when you're confronted with yourself? Yep. What are the ways that we attack ourselves, ignore ourselves, ignore each other? Because again, like in looking at some articles that were talking about this film, one thing that I read in Tasha Robinson's article on The Verge... And the article is called Jordan Peele's Us Turns a Political Statement into Unnerving Horror. Again, it's written by Tasha Robinson. And I quote, Peele said the film is fundamentally about America's misplaced fear of outsiders. This movie is about this country, he said. We're in a time where we fear the other, whether it's the mysterious invader that we think is going to come and kill us and take our jobs, or the faction we don't live near who voted a different way than us. We're all about pointing the finger. And I want to suggest that maybe the monster we really need to look at has our face. Maybe the evil, it's us. And so I'm thinking about all these questions and looking at how this family has assimilated into this upper middle class life. Gabe still has a lot of ambition that is rooted in whiteness. There's a point in the movie where he buys a boat. We're just witnessing the trappings of whiteness that this family is trying to aspire to. Yeah. But especially Gabe. And the boat that he buys is so janky. <laughs> It is like so janky. So it makes you question like what happens when even the trappings of whiteness fail? Like will we ever be able to live up to these standards and why do we want to? Yeah. And then there's a really interesting switch too later in the film where Gabe ends up having to fight the bad Josh. So he's literally fighting with his white ideal. Yeah. So the symbolism and the, again, like the metaphors and there's, there's so much of it in this movie. It's rife with it, but it's also just scary. It's just scary. Yeah. There's 
there's a part where Zora is running away and Umbre, her doppelganger, her shadow, her tether, chases her to this car. And then she's kind of looking at her through the car windows or each on either side. And then Umbre just disappears. And I'm like, fuck this shit. I got to pause it again. I got to go. Like, I could not handle... It was such a heightened sense of fear in this movie, but then it's tempered by this very real family dynamic. So I just found it like really fascinating that I could withstand that kind of horror. And that is the kind of horror that I enjoy. Yeah. Because it's really tempered by looking at how this family interacts with each other, how they interact with the world, and how they interact with the tethers. Because there is a point in the movie where the family is really on a separate journey of terror with their own doppelgangers. And again, like that is saying a lot about how do we face ourselves? I just, I don't know. I could talk about this movie for 700 years. Yeah. But Red, the shadow, does explain how all of this is connected. When she first meets the family and she's sitting down and talking to them about who she is, she basically points out that the tethers receive all of the bad side of life and the cold and the darkness. So, for example, she says, you know, your toys were soft and mine were sharp and cold. So they were living parallel lives. And she points out how her version of the parallel life was awful. It was awful. Yeah. And there's something that I read that I wanted to also talk about here. Again, this is from the Soraya McDonald essay on The Undefeated. She says, Us is a jagged allegory for the pitfalls of capitalism and the resentment that mounts when we pretend those whose labor we exploit for our happiness do not exist. Mm. And that hit me so hard. And it made me think instantly of, we don't have to reach back too far to understand how that is a true statement. Think about this pandemic and how everyone was rallying around essential quote-unquote workers in the beginning. And essential workers didn't get a raise. And essential workers are burnt out right now. And essential workers, you know, we don't cheer for them anymore. And we have gone back to wanting to pretend that their labor to keep us safe and healthy doesn't exist. And this kind of goes double for Black people, I think. America's cultural reference for itself is to ignore its own history. Mm. And so we tend to not focus on Black people who are innovative and creative and who bring a lot of things to the forefront of our lives and enhance our lives. And we tend to just kind of forget about people who are not white <laughs> because that's mm -hmm. not how America wants to write its own history. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that was a very poignant and pointed sentiment mm -hmm. that fits really well in the description of this movie because I think that's what this family is representing. Yeah, It's a really, truly terrifying film. I think that the use of music in this film is scary. Oh, my God. They make a point <laughs> of using I Got Five on it in two different scenes and they do like a classical. And that song is pretty spooky to begin with. Oh, completely. It's so spooky. I love the orchestral version of it, the one uh. that's playing during the ballet scene. I was like, I never knew I needed a strings version of I Got Five on it, but thank fucking God it's here. Thank fucking God it's here. Love it. <laughs> but also the mini Ripperton song. Yes. At the end. I won't give away the ending, obviously. That song I'd always listen Listen to just sort of as like, oh, this is like a Saturday afternoon, easy breezy 70s song or whatever. Fucking terrifying in this yeah. movie. <laughs> Holy shit. It's so scary. And it's that exact thing. Like the way that Jordan Peele uses symbolism and pop culture references for things that are previously innocent or 
calm or comforting. And he uses that to turn it around and freak us the fuck out. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, Hands Across America is a big symbolic part of this film. Yeah. And he uses this thing that was developed to fight poverty as a way to point a finger at us and look at our own racism, which is Fucking brilliant. Any way you shake it. But he makes Hands Across America fucking terrifying. Yeah. He makes rabbits terrifying. There's a bunch of white rabbits hopping around in, you know, this underground world. And it's punctuated by some black ones and some brown ones. And that's intentional. Yeah. Everything he does is intentional. I know I'm quoting us to death here, but there are just so many that are good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So many thoughtful pieces about this movie. But it has to be said that Jordan Peele loves pop culture. He is someone who has consumed pop culture his whole life, you can tell in the way that he writes and directs his films. And Richard Brody of The New Yorker pointed out, and I quote, the movie's many pop culture references, whether kids wearing t-shirts for Thriller or Jaws or the presence of good vibrations and fuck the police on the soundtrack are no mere decorations. Peel's radical vision of inequality of the haves and the have-nots, those who are in and those who are out, is reflected brightly and brilliantly in his view of pop culture, current and classic, mass media is presented in us as rich people's culture, if not in the immediate origins of its artists, then in the production, distribution, marketing, platforming, and lawyering of the work, in the very notion of its valuable and ubiquitous legacy. So that's a very wordy New Yorkery way of saying, like, he thought about how we use pop culture against each other and how we use pop culture against Blackness. Yeah. And that is, to me, again, a fascinating thought to have come out of this film, because pop culture is fueled by blackness. Yeah. It's fueled by blackness. So I think that, again, he's very, very smart. He made a terrifying fucking film. I could talk about it for 17 hours, but it is truly just scary. It's dark. It's ominous. It's a little bit gory, but it's thoughtful and it's funny. And the kids are so funny. There's one scene where Abby and Gabe are talking and Jason goes like, what's micro machines? And the other kid goes, what's home alone? It's like they are so far removed from these pop cultural references. So it's that kind of feeling where it's like it's a very dark and scary movie that's punctuated by these funny moments. Jordan Peele is masterful at bringing in the levity right when you need it and then scaring the shit out of you. Yes. And I just think I loved Get Out. Get Out is, like you said, it is a pivotal film. I particularly think that Us is his actual masterpiece. I would have to agree with you. I feel like, so when we saw it in 2019... There's always that whole like setup, like I said before, of like, okay, somebody made this like really important, big, huge culture shifting thing. And now they have to make a second movie, right? Yes. And there was that pressure, I think, everybody gets when they have to like do replicate some kind of huge success again. And it goes double for Jordan Peele, who's a black man, right? So... When we walked into the movie theater, I had pretty much no idea what the movie was going to be about, which obviously is a good thing. Because when I first started the movie, I got that sense. It's sort of Shining-esque. And I know that a lot of people make that comparison about us, about how it has notes of The Shining. But it's that like creeping feeling of like, oh, here's this family. And they're kind of just like, you know, having really fun, buoyant conversations. But something creepy is about to happen. You don't know what that's going to be. And it lasts for like a very long time. 
time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the first, like, at least 20 minutes of the movie, you're like, oh, okay, they're just chilling. I mean, but what's going to happen? They're in their vacation home, you know, much like the Torrances go to this other location. And like you said, a lot of it is Santa Cruz, right? So it's kind of this, like, white, rich environment. It's in nature. There's a boardwalk. There's a beach. So here they are in this sort of place that's not there, their home. And you're kind of like, what's going to happen? So when I first watched the film... I think I was trying to figure out what that was going to be so much that when the rest of the film started happening, I was like, oh, I don't even know what's going on right now. I'm just sort of like, (laughs) I know I'm terrified and I don't know what's going to happen next. But like my mind only really focused on the visual horror, on the suspense part. Right. That the story part, it didn't occur to me until much later, like after I'd watched the film that I'm like, okay, so what was that movie about? Let me figure this out. And back then, I think I had a hard time with trying to piece together the narrative of the story. But when I watched it this time, I really did the opposite. It's terrifying as shit, scarier even from when I first saw it. But (laughs) now I picked up on all the little plot points. There's a scene, this was actually terrifying to me personally, but there's a scene where the Elizabeth Moss character is sitting on the beach, that whole scene at the beach where Uh her and Adelaide are like, they're sitting there and then like, she sort of kind of mentions that she had had plastic surgery. Yes! And it's that like whole thing where she kind of looks at Adelaide and is like, well, of course you don't need plastic surgery in that sort of like god i covet your skin i covet your blackness basically mm-hmm. and then of course that plays out yes later in the horror when her character's tether comes and tries to basically steal her skin and i was like holy fuck like that really hit me this time and i was like that is terrifying yes and so there was all these moments like that on this watch that really like crystallized sort of what the story was for me and i just appreciated it a lot more you know it's sometimes that happens in film like sometimes like when a movie is epic when it's big when it's like this masterpiece right sometimes you kind of have to compartmentalize your viewing and you're like okay for this viewing I only could really glom onto this part and then the next time I watch it I really pay attention to this part so I think that's kind of what happened for me and honestly I'm so glad I watched it again as I always say on this podcast watch movies again because you get better understandings of them and I think it really is like he made a huge artistic statement after he had made this other incredible film. And that is just, I think, a testament to his talent is that he was like, I'm going in this direction and I don't give a shit. I'm going to make this movie and I'm going to take the ideas that I have and put them in this one big rich text. And it was a success, at least in my opinion. So I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think something else that really struck me this time around is thinking about Jordan Peele as a creator is, again, another question. Like he makes me question things, which I really appreciate. But my question that I got at the end of this that kind of came to mind was do Black creators make horror films that are full of social commentary because they have to or because they can't help noticing these things and how closely related to horror they are? I want to think that the creativity of Jordan Peele's mind is more intense than him just looking at the world and being like, I'm going to make a movie about that. I think that he is creative enough to want to just tell a scary story and just make a horror film, but that he's also so preternaturally smart that he can't help but add these elements in that help us look at ourselves. So yeah, I just, I loved it. I loved it. Thank you for bearing with me while I fucking talked about it for seven hours straight. No way. This was great. I'm so glad you picked it. As per usual, 
I love watching movies again. I love it when you pick a movie that I hadn't seen in a long time, and it was great to have seen it again. Well, I love your movie, too. My goodness. Well, I have so much to say about my movie, unfortunately, so you might have to go down this road with me on, on this film. I'm there. Yeah, so my film for the theme of Black Horror was a movie from 1995. It was written by Rusty Cundiff and Darren Scott. It was directed by Rusty Cundiff, and it's called Tales from the Hood. In this neighborhood is a house where souls never rest. You're invited to share their secrets. I've been waiting for you, boys. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the director of this film, Rusty Cundiff. He is originally from Pittsburgh. He went to USC for college. And after he graduated, he did exactly what you do. He started doing stand-up in Los Angeles. (laughs) And through that scene, I think he met a lot of people who would eventually become sort of involved in his films. People like David Allen Greer. More about him later. But... Through the comedy stuff, you know, he had some acting roles, most notably in Spike Lee's movie, School Days. And, you know, he was very much inspired by Spike to pursue directing and writing. And eventually he wrote and directed and starred in the much beloved satire film, Fear of a Black Hat, which I thought was fucking hilarious when I saw it in high school. It's basically the spinal tap of rap music. Yes. In my mind. It's our civic duty to bang the booty. (laughs) I used to say that all the time. To whom? To whom? <laughs> to myself in my bedroom. But he's had so, his hand in so many things, though, since. I mean, he directed lots of episodes of The Chappelle Show. He was on TV Nation, the Michael Moore show from the 90s. He's a very talented man, still working. But I was like, should I come up with a one-sentence synopsis of this film? But I feel like I really couldn't. So I'm just going to like maybe skip a one-sentence synopsis and just kind of tell you a little bit about what the film's about. So Tales from the Hood is a horror anthology film. And there's actually this great tradition of horror anthologies. Going back to at least the 1940s, if not earlier, I'm thinking of stuff like Mario Bava's Black Sabbath, Creep Show, mm-hmm. Stephen King's Cat's Eye, COVID Don't Take Our King. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, there was a lot of, like, horror anthology on television, certainly when we were growing up. I mean, there's, like, Tales from the Dark Side, Tales from the Crypt, but also The Twilight Zone. All of that stuff, I think plays a part into Tales from the Hood. So this film, this anthology, has four parts. Each of them are different stories, obviously. But then there's this general wraparound story, which is there's a group of these young drug dealers. They show up to this old mansion to try to buy these drugs off of this eccentric funeral director who's named Mr. Sims, and he's played by the great Clarence Williams III. And so what happens is in that way, that anthology way, it's like Mr. Sims is kind of the guy that's like, well, I'm going to tell you the stories about the people, you know, blah, 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 blah. So he's kind of the narrator for the stories. Yeah, he's the, he's the guide. <laughs> yeah, he's the guide. Kind of the crypt keeper, if you will. <laughs> so I just have to break in and say this, because I did not see this movie in the 90s. I only saw this in the last few years or so. I don't know if it played at the New Beverly, but I feel like maybe I heard it on their podcast. Like, I heard about this movie and I was like, oh, I have to see that. I never saw that movie. And part of me wonders if the reason I didn't see it initially is because I assumed, I don't know if it's because of the VHS cover or something. I just thought it was like a parody horror film. Yes. 
I did see it in the 90s, and that was my experience of it, was I thought it was going to be just a pure comedy slapstick parody movie. Yes. And, you know, I'm not sure if maybe I was thinking Fear of a Black Hat had something to do with that. I don't know. Or maybe, you know, at the time in the 90s, we saw a lot of that kind of parody horror, especially from like the Wayans Brothers. And, you know, the cover of the VHS or the DVD, I thought, oh, maybe this is going to be like some funny horror film. So I don't know if that's why I missed it. But... I got to tell you, when I finally saw it, man, this movie is really something. Totally unique. Totally. It's extraordinarily relevant. And I got to say, I mean, it's kind of downright revolutionary if you think about it, especially for the time that it was made. Yes. And the craziest thing is, is that when you first when you first put it on, the first 10 minutes or so, you're thinking, okay, this has got to be some kind of funny black send up from Tales of the Crypt, right? There's moments of funniness, especially when they first show up to Mr. Sims' house and he just kind of shows up and he's like... Good evening. He does the whole like good evening thing. And you're like, okay, what is this? But then when the first story starts and you realize that this is a story about a rookie black police officer who watches his white superiors beat and kill a black community organizer, you're like, holy shit. And frame him. And like ruin his legacy. Yeah. Yes. And that is really what this movie is, is that it's a horror movie, but it's about like the real life horrors experienced by the black community. And there's so much going on in this film because, again, it's an anthology. It's telling these little kind of bite-sized stories of things, but it weaves in a lot about gang violence, domestic violence, child abuse, slavery. And it's actually reaching out to these like really like pivotal historical moments from like the 80s and 90s, certainly from our childhood. So it's kind of like Rodney King. Mm -hmm. There's a story where Corbin Burnson, the actor Corbin Burnson, is playing this like David Duke type character. And that was a huge thing I remember from my childhood is remembering the David Duke stuff. Yeah. That he was like always on TV. And reviled. Reviled. Ugh. Like to see how much we deal with fucking Nazis now. Yes. And everyone's trying to be like, let's hear both sides. Well, in the 90s, it was like, fuck this dude. He ran the KKK. Fuck him. Reviled. Yes. And yet he was elected to the Louisiana mm -hmm. House of Representatives or something like that. You're just like, I mean, honestly... That is happening right now. Yep. There are people in our Congress, especially people in like local governments that are fucking as shitty and horrible as David Duke. And you're like, wow, nothing has fucking changed at all. And all of the stories are very topical, very relevant. Again, the first story is about police brutality. Basically, they're kind of telling the Rodney King video and the trial over again in a way. There is a second story where this little kid is experiencing some kind of abuse at home and his teacher, who is actually played by Rusty Kundiff, is trying to figure out what's going on because he's showing up with bruises and eventually they kind of encourage him to start drawing pictures of what's going on at his house and he's, he keeps saying that there's this monster that comes and hurts him. And then of course like there is a, a moment where the teacher finally goes to his home and tries to figure out like okay what's going on like your son's in trouble and we need to figure this out and that's when David Alan Greer comes in. A real departure for Dag. Holy shit. Like, we're fans. We've talked about this on this podcast before. Love Dag, but holy shit, he is evil as hell in this movie. Mm -hmm. In a way that's very jarring. But that is, like, again, another story that kind of talks about something that's happening in a lot of families. And it's basically like, 
the abuse and how do children and wives and girlfriends and, and people in the house, how are they affected by this? Right. Right. And honestly, for me, I think it's the fourth story that really was like sort of eye opening. And like, I mean, it's kind of intense, but it's a good intense. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's essentially about a gang member who goes to jail for participating in a murder and he gets offered parole if he agrees to sort of be transferred and be essentially having like this experimental treatment done to him, which is very Clockwork Orange-esque where he gets like kind of hooked up to a machine. Right. And there's a black female doctor who's kind of facilitating the whole thing. And it's also very like eugenics related. Yes. And, you know, he's very hardened. He's very much like he's a young man. He's just very arrogant. And the machine starts showing him images of historical racist violence and murder alongside gang murders and sort of like what he's been participating in. And it's sort of showing him that gang violence also results in the killing of Black people in the same way that this was happening in the past, right? It's very effective. The montage sequence of that, like that whole scene where he is sort of hooked up to the machine and he's seeing these images was really, I mean, it's effective and intense and it's really scary, Like, it's a scary moment for a horror movie, right? Absolutely. It's very scary, and it's dark and red, and, like, it's, like, the way they use the image. It's very fascinating. There's a part where he's strapped up to this machine, and he starts shouting, you know, what about me? What about my pain? Yeah. And what about what I've been through? And that's the thing that is inextricable in the Black experience, is that he's saying, yes, I recognize that on a very Black and white level, you can say that I am participating in killing Black people, but what about my life? And what about what I have suffered? And I'm not dead, but I have been diminished and I have been controlled and I have been cast aside. And like, it's just, it's the very simple statement that really packs a huge punch. Oh, completely. And it goes back to what I think the disconnect was between what I thought this movie was and what this movie actually is, right? Because I think I I either read or saw an interview with the director that he himself was very much trying to make a political relevant horror film. I think he had mentioned that his father was a big activist and would go to a lot of marches and he'd grown up being a black activist. And so of course he wants to make something that's, you know, reflective of that. And of course the studio did not want to market a movie like this. They were like, how do we do this? How do we market a movie that's about black pain and black horror and not like some fucking fluffy bullshit, right? As they always do. And so part of me wonders if that is where it came from. It's just this idea that here's a studio who's sort of like completely stuck in trying to figure out black people as they always do. And then they're just like, well, let's just like throw this cover of like a skull with like, you know, or whatever. And maybe people will watch it and think it's like some funny movie. And yet it was actually this. It was actually this like really serious, contemplative, thoughtful political horror movie. And so in a way, it just feels like the movie should have been better served in the 90s. I agree. And I think that you're absolutely right that there was no pathway. There was no language. Like nobody knew what to do with this kind of political film back in that day, or at least they knew what to do with it, but they wouldn't do it. You know, I think that it was twofold. And if it had been treated the way that I imagine the director wanted it to be treated, it could have been groundbreaking in the same way as Get Out. It could have been groundbreaking and genre-changing in a very similar way. 
Right. I think it's really hard to divorce politics from any horror. I feel like horror in general is kind of like inherently political, even if, you know, people try to act like it's not. I mean, horror comes from something elemental, right? Right. Which is, it's not fluff normally. But I think it goes double for black horror because here's a creator who is trying to make this very artistic, meaningful statement. And, you know, when you get into the Hollywood machine, it's like you hope that people will honor those things about it, you know, but a lot of times they don't. They don't know what to do. And so, you know, I think that this movie obviously was very pioneering. I think the 90s in general, I mean, I, I will go back and encourage everybody to watch that horror noir documentary because I think it really lays it out kind of perfectly yeah. in terms of what the 90s were doing for black horror and you had stuff like Candyman and you definitely had this film and that obviously would pave the way for something like Get Out, right? Yes. However, the most interesting thing to me, and I feel like Rusty kind of says this in an interview as well that I found online, where he was able to make two sequels to this film. Yes. But it happened <laughs> after Get Out. Exactly. So in this weird way, the movie Get Out was influenced by something like Tales from the Hood, but that he was able to make sequels because of Get Out. So that's very interesting to me, you know? I know. the way, And the way that those movies are in conversation with each other now. Yes, is wild. It is. It's wild because you never put those movies in conversation with each other if they were both released in the 90s or if they were both released at the same exact time. Yeah. But because Get Out came and people started paying attention to black horror and needing black horror voices. Yeah. They started making more of this. It's great. Yeah. And, you know, like a lot of what he, you know, Spike Lee produced the first film and this and the subsequent films. You know, I think that was a big deal for the director at the time in the 90s was to have Spike Lee's involvement. But just to think about that in terms of like now Jordan Peele's involvement helps people get things made, which is kind of remarkable. But it's that thing of like, it takes so long for the industry to kind of catch up to people. Like, that's like the craziest part. And we talk about this all the time on the podcast, where in terms of black creators, it's just like, what took you so long? There was people making fucking great, politically relevant, hard hitting horror films in the 90s. And then Y'all just didn't know what to do with them. In the 70s, we talked about it last year when we talked about Ganja and Hess. Absolutely. Like, they wouldn't even distribute it as is. They turned it into a total shit show. And you're right. Yeah, I mean, I this is just a side note, but, you know, in the book that I wrote, I write about Blackula, and I talk about William Crane, the director of Blackula, about how he wanted to also make Blackula a very poignant, not you know, entirely serious, but also he wanted he wanted more of there to be a commentary and a message there. But of course, studios being like, but we got to make this black vampire movie. He's got has got to be a freak, you know, like we can't exactly. talk about your serious shit. And I'm just sort of like, that's the craziest part, you know, is this like trying to keep the integrity of something of a, of a movie that you really want to make that has a very distinct personal message. But, you know, well, imagine how fucked up it is too that, you know, going back to what I said earlier, because I do truly believe this, that pop culture is black culture. Like we give so much of, of ourselves in that way that we create culture and imagine how fucked it is to see that your idea isn't accepted. Your political horror, black horror movie isn't accepted in the 90s. But then Cabin in the Woods comes along. But then, you know, something else comes along in the same vein and launches careers and makes millions. Yeah. 
And it's fucked. It's fucked that that is the modern way that people continue to chip away at and take away from Black people and Black creators is your idea is not something we will fund or develop or produce, but we will take your idea and give it to another creator. Or if somebody else comes along and they're white and they have the right face, then we'll support that. Right. Even if it's a risk, even if it's something new, even if it's something that we haven't heard of before, you see in film, especially time and time again, white directors getting the opportunity to take more chances. Yeah. Even though, again, so much of our cultural background and our cultural life is rooted in Blackness. Yeah. I'm heartened now by Jordan Peele and by, you know, directors like Boots Riley. And I'm always heartened to see how that shift is taking place. I think there's a long way to go, but I still try to hold on to the good part of it, which is that we are going to see more of that, I hope, because the Jordan Peels, the Get Outs, the Uses are helping to usher in this new climate where there's not as much fear around those ideas. And I think that Jordan Peele especially, he even mentioned it in one of the articles I read, I believe it was at the New York Times when Manola Dargis reviewed us. But he even said that he got like double the budget and more time to make us because of the success of Get Out. Right. So these things kind of piggyback on each other. And we give people more space to be more creative when we support them and support their work at every stage. Absolutely. And just to close out this month, I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts? Like, again, I feel like we did a good job I'm not going to pat ourselves on the back all the time, but I'm just saying, I think we did a good job of covering a big spread. Yeah. We started it off with somebody like Menelik Shabazz. We're ending it talking about Black Horror, Jordan Peele. So what are your thoughts? Like, what are your thoughts to this experience? I feel as good about this Black History Month review that we did as I did about last year, which is, you know, I think it's important to me as somebody who is in this business to find creators and and remember that I'm part of a legacy, that I'm part of something bigger than myself. Mm-hmm. And I will pat us on the back. I think that we do a good job of picking from across the genres, really showcasing that there is a place for Black films in every aspect of life. And I think that, you know, we have said this before in previous episodes, but we tend to not always focus on like, well, this is Women's History Month, so we're only going to do movies by women. We have a more organic approach to our podcast where we will always showcase Black films. We will always showcase films by people who have been othered because that is just what our sensibilities are. So I think we did a really good job of continuing that process of just saying, you know, yes, it is important this month to focus on Blackness and Black people. But I'm really happy to have this platform with you where we can just say this is part of what we do in general and what we will always do. And I think that the films that we chose and the way that we presented it this month was just really, again, emboldened me and made me really proud to have this podcast with somebody who gets it and who wants to kind of look at things through the same lens that I do. I appreciate hearing that. But you know what? I'm so glad to be doing this with you because I feel like your perspective is so necessary, so important. I feel like it was a great month of movies. We had a lot of fun. We talked a lot of serious stuff, too. And I feel like that's our podcast is that basically we can do both things and we can talk about the light moments 
with the more serious moments. And I feel like this month was a testament to that. I think it was great. I, I loved it. I'm again, black history month is every day as we talked about before, but just being able to carve out a little bit of time to put a hyper focus on some of these creators is always a blast. And I hope everybody enjoyed it. If you have anything to say, like if you have feedback, please like let us know. We love hearing from you, especially about the films and the analysis. We love that. <laughs> But if you want to talk about interior slugs, I guess we'll let you do that, too. I mean, I will. I will. (laughs) Millie might not read that email, but I will read it. (laughs) Do you want to uh, give the people the films for next week? I truly do. Mm. (laughs) So our films for next week are Cleo from 5 to 7 from 1962 and Gas Food Lodging from 1992. Two, and your job is to guess the theme. My God. True bangers. Can't believe it. We left bangers and we're bringing more bangers back. So this is great. <laughs> also, we have a bonus episode that's coming Thursday, the 24th. So check that out. Stitcher Premium. Yep. If you got it. But listen, if you want to email us, as we always say, we're at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And also send us questions for the bonus episodes. Because, you know, that's what we do a lot on the bonus is that we answer a lot of questions. You know, we ask people to send us stories of like working in movie theaters and movie related fun if your parents made you go to a weird risque movie at a young age we love all those stories so please i saw what you did pod at gmail and also please find us on our social media we are at i saw pod on instagram and twitter and we have a lot of fun on those those spaces with you that's right. And we have merch in the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And like Millie just said, we have, if you want more more content from us, we have a bunch of bonus episodes available exclusively at Stitcher Premium. And you can still use the promo code SAW for a free month. Also, I forgot to mention, we do have a P.O. box. Yes. Somebody during the break sent us Christmas presents, and I thought that was so sweet, except we couldn't find the return address. I I had no idea who sent them. So if it was you, if you sent us a Christmas present, thank you so much. We loved it. But yeah, if you go to, uh, on our Instagram, we have a link tree. There should be the P.O. box information there. If you just want to send us letters, handwritten letters, that might be cool. Oh, that'd be really cool. Yeah. I'd love to read letters. Also, I'm glad that you have signed up for this P.O. box because as you know, I have an extreme response to my own self-reliance and protection and I would never. So thank Millie for this P.O. box. Because I would never sign up for one or check it because I'd be feeling like y'all be lurking waiting for me to show up. I wouldn't do it. So thank you, Millie, for taking the risk. Because you're going to get some shit in the mail now. You're going to get some shit. Listen, if Danielle had the P.O. box, she'd be showing up with a machete just to check that mail. Every envelope. She'd be keeping a tight perimeter around. (laughs) Every box, every envelope, I'd be like, throw this to your x-ray machine at the airport. It would take me 17 weeks to open every package because I would have to drive it to the Newark airport every time I got one. You'd be like doing home tests for like powder residue and shit. Oh my God. (laughs) You would never even open the mail because you'd be like, I got to do my fifth test. I truly wouldn't. And never send us food because I will report you to Homeland Security right away. (laughs) (laughs) This shit's got to be laced. Holy shit. Well, as per usual, Danielle, it was a pleasure, as always. Always. So glad to be with you. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. Bye, guys. See you next week. Bye.
This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ISawPod. You can email us at ISawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.